Hey guys, welcome back to Anchored and Devoted. This is Pastor Jer. And I'm Pastor Joseph. Hey, we're glad you guys are here with us. We're doing uh, part two of uh, the book review, not book review. We're looking at uh, the book as The Coddling of the American Mind by, I think, uh, Greg Lucanus or something. And um, Lukanoff. Lukanoff. How yeah, we that's butcher it. his name. And the other guy's name is Jonathan uh, Haidt. Jonathan Haidt. Is Haidt. Yeah. Sure. I heard, uh, I heard a, an interview the other day with Greg Lukanoff. And mm-hmm. he pronounced Jonathan's last name. So I was like, oh, okay. Oh, go for it. it what did he say? It's hate. Oh, okay. It is hate. Yeah. Yep. I'll That's try it. not to remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't know this until I listened to the, yeah, I'm not going to remember that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, you know. I read uh, the book. I did my part. That's right. <laughs> I didn't know this until listening to the interview. Um, but Greg Lukanoff was a, and is still associated with, but used to work as a um, counsel for the ACLU. Oh, and that makes uh, sense. Yeah. A uh, part of the reason that he branched off was to be able to better focus specifically on the issue of free speech. So he, he leads a organization now that's, um, uh, the organization is called FIRE. I don't remember what the acronym is. It's not really important. I've never heard of this. This is the first time you're telling me this. So, well, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to our I audience. know. I'm just They're saying. Just I, I, will, I will try and remember just because I'm curious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a holiday weekend coming up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we'll see. That's right. Yeah. In <laughs> Dave and my world, this is the July 4th weekend. Uh, for yep. you guys, there might be snow on the ground, but hey, it, it could be. I don't think it'll be that late. Hopefully, it'll get in the hopper sooner than that. But either way, there we wanted to look at um, the first section of the book, the three bad ideas that the two authors share. The first is the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. The second is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. And the third one is the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Uh, you want to give a review of what you know, some of the stuff we covered before in general as background, or just want to dive in? Let's just dive in, mostly because I don't honestly remember what we covered before <laughs> right now. <laughs> we, we need to start recording in order. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I think the first bad idea is one, um, and we've talked about this because this is, like my soapbox that I get on for Western Christians is this desire to be comfortable. Um, even this week, I had a good conversation with a sister in Christ who was looking at a potential job. And it's at a place where she used to work that she knows isn't a fit. But she knows she can get a job easy, even though she knows probably in six months she'll be ready to quit again. Um, and I had to challenge her on this desire to be comfortable over a desire to grow. Um, right. Growth requires being uncomfortable, and we accept that in every area of life except for the internal part. Um, so the head and the heart, both the mind and the spirit. When we talk about doing tough things, people like to fall apart. You know you need to train for a marathon. There's no soft way of doing that. Like you will pay someone, they'll put you on a diet. If you're extra fluffy, if you're just like me, medium fluffy, they're going to run you into the ground forever and ever. 
And if you're a skinny person, they're still going to run you into the ground forever and ever. Like there's going to be pain for this growth. When it comes to um, our personal internal lives, often we don't want that. We don't want that in our Christian walk, right? Even though scripture is very clear, um, the the idea of what doesn't kill you makes you weaker um, versus the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is one that comes out of a fear mindset, at least for me. Um, where I'm, I'm going to, again, avoid as much discomfort as possible. Um, even when the discomfort is good. Like you don't, I'm a runner, you know this year and so are you. There is the, the discomfort of the first couple of weeks, and we were talking about this even when it comes to mm-hmm. my son with basketball camp. The first couple of weeks, you're going to be uncomfortable. Like, there's no way about this. If you've taken a month or two off, it's going to be uncomfortable. But then after a few weeks, you're going to get back into the groove, and you're going to feel better and actually enjoy the push, the pain. But then also you enjoy the recovery because it allows yeah. you to sleep better and allows you to have a clearer mind. Um, this is just from running. For some, I have a coworker where for her, her thing is swimming, like, when she gets her laps in, the world is a better place. Uh, we're built to move, and part of moving means we bump into stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, part of moving means we have to push against things, pull against things, and that grows muscles. Um, but when it, when we talk about um, the you know memorizing scripture, memorizing a book of the Bible, um, people start off in their faith, and you know they're willing to do it. As we move along, not so much. Um, do you, what do you think has led to this? What do you think has led to that? A, I guess what I'm asking is, has it been this way to this extent for, you know, is there, is, is the pattern developed where it's more this way now than it used to be? Is it less this way than it used to be? And, and if it is something that has changed, when did we go from, Believing if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger to believing if it doesn't kill you, it makes you weaker. When did that happen? And what do you think? I think change come about personally, and I have no research behind this. So take it truly with a grain of salt. Um, I personally believe it started as we moved two ways. Uh, First, we moved as a country from um, building things to services. Okay. Um, And so I, I think that. That physicality, that being able to see something accomplished, that um, uh, knowing that you're a part of a process that's bigger than yourself and um, I'm dependent upon you and you're dependent upon me and there are, you know, we've created something together. Right. As opposed to services where it's, you know, Molly Mae cleans your house and I never see them. Right. Or, I mean, that's a tangible service or another service. Uh, you have a retirement account and there's someone managing your money. You have no clue who this person is, it's, but yet they're getting paid off of you. Right. Um, I believe this is me and I'm making it clear. I believe um, that that challenges people to really lean into being comfortable versus being community. <laughs> driven or connected okay 
Um, Did you say there's a second thing as well? Yeah, the the second thing I think is just the um, affluent nature of our Western world. Um, And so even those that are not as well off as others, having money is one of those things you don't realize how much you have of it until it's gone. Right. Um, I'm reading a book now called, um, and it's not a Christian book and I haven't finished it, but so far it's pretty good. Um, but I'm reading a book um, about Brazil and it called, it's called Things Are Never So Bad That They Can't Get Worse. Um, <laughs> yeah, great. Um, and uh, the author does a really good job of describing how... Timely they kept, in terms of their elections right now. Well, it, it's it's interesting because um, you have a very beautiful country with beautiful people that are blessed with amazing resources, and the resources have become such an enabler mm-hmm. uh, for the people that the mindset uh, of those in country is that government has to take care of. Right. To the point that people don't take care of themselves. Um, and so it's the opposite of what you see in the U.S. as far as independent street. Um, that, I'm sure, affects the way they worship. Like I, it's, it's so ingrained in the culture. It must affect the way they worship. And I have to assume the same for us when we look at how blessed we've been with all the resources and whatnot and how... You know, the stock market moves and just blessing upon blessing from being able to defend ourselves and other stuff. There's a certain amount of peace that we have. Sure. And um, instead of using that peace to explore, I think many parents, and this is where the generational stuff kind of kicks in, seek to give their little ones a better life and better life for them means safe. And the definition of safe means bubble wrapped. Okay, um, so I, I wanted to touch on that just a little bit because, again, the title of the book is something that I chuckled at, you chuckled at, my wife doesn't mm-hmm. like it. Neither of the authors of the book like the title. It was uh, one that was given to an article that was written that the book grew out of by the mm-hmm. editor for the article, and then the book was named after the article. But the question here is, you know, what is the difference between coddling and caring for? Mm-hmm. And I think that you're touching on that where you said this idea of safetyism, which actually um, that word safetyism came out of the research that was done for the article. It was not a word that was in use before that. Mm-hmm. The goal of protecting someone keeping them from harm is a good goal it's a worthwhile goal but when you take it past the point of um past the point where a person is able to grow Mm -hmm. to constrict rather than to restrict and see i would even i wouldn't even say grow i'd say live because most people I, I view aren't even living because of how they're desiring to be so safe. And that's what you were talking about with, with Bubble Wrap. It's the mm-hmm. old movie Bubble Boy or the remake of Bubble Boy. I want you to be so safe that I wrap your entire body in four-inch thick foam and then duct tape so that you could never 
hurt yourself. I mean, Correct. why stop there? Why not just put me in a full body cast? Why not put you in a room that's padded? In a full body <laughs> cast. <laughs> no, but but honestly, that's I know um in the in many different arenas they're wrestling with, okay, how best to care. Um I know when it comes to the medical world, there's a big question of when to engage, how to engage mm-hmm. based off of side effects and other things. Um, you know, you catch COVID, you're given a pill now. Are the side effects from the pill worse than COVID itself? Well, for some people, it is. Right. Um, and so for some, they need not to take it or they need a different medicine. Um, and then for others, it's fine. Go for it and take it. Um, the book does a good job of making it clear, and I'm seeing it in our culture around us, that life is meant to be lived. And if we um, focus on um, being safe more than living, and I would define living, being able to grow, being able to explore, being able to make mistakes, mm-hmm. um, you know, and unfortunately, we live in a culture that is puts everything um, on blast is is good for shaming one another. It's mm-hmm. good for tearing one another down on social media, on any avenue in which they can share information versus helping one another. And I think part of living is being able to care and help the other person. Um, yeah. I'd also say from this section in the book, um, it challenged me to make sure that we don't define people by their weakness. Um, and so often we we like to label, right? Um, especially in my world of counseling, we like the label, and I always make sure to push back to say, "Okay, you're still a child of God. You're you are filled with the Spirit." There are other things that are at play outside of the label that's attached to you sure um there is work to be done whether it's taking medicine or whatever but know that god is still good he's still big and um, hears you knows you and desires deeper relationship um 15 or 20 years ago a sociologist by the name of christian smith wrote a book um i don't remember the title of the book but he his basic premise was that um, religion in America mm-hmm. has been reduced to what he described as moral theistic deism. Okay, I got that wrong. More, oh, I got that wrong. Not theistic, moral therapeutic deism. Okay, okay. So the goal okay. here is there is some kind of higher power somewhere that generally mm-hmm. wants me to be happy, and I can be happy generally by being good. But the point is, the therapeutic here is this is about my happiness. This is about my balance. We talk about, you just talked about labels. And my answer to the question, what changed? I, I like the perspective that you brought in, that we went from being producing to being serving mm-hmm. in that sense. Um, because I think that there's a a tie into the way that identity has become so elevated. Your identity, my identity, how I identify myself 
as separate from, okay, so here's the people group I came from, or here's the ethnicity that I came mm-hmm. from, or here's a culture in which I grew yep. up, or here's a community in which I live too. Let me granularize this as much as possible so that I'm a overweight, you know, Italian, Puerto Rican, American citizen who is blind and a part of an adopted blended family with handicapped children and Christian and male. And, <laughs> I mean, that's a bazillion it, labels. There is, that is. And, and, and the other, thing and is, in other countries, you would not be considered overweight. So that's well, the other thing. Like it's relative in to the other border. countries. I would also be considered <laughs> handsome. So I should probably go to other countries. No, I just, but the, the reason that this is important is because when we, when we define things, when we label things like this, mm-hmm. one of the things that we're doing is we are saying this label fits not only sufficiently, but also necessarily. And mm-hmm. when you label yourself with things, especially as it comes to your identity, there is an unspoken assumption that you have fully realized who you are. Mm-hmm. That those labels, while you can change them, can't change themselves, aren't going to naturally change with time. And, you know, just to open up this can of worms, we see this right now very clearly within the the discussion over transgenderism. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? When does it start? When does it end? When would someone say, hey, you know, I identify as transgender right now, but um, six years from now, I might not. And Mm -hmm. nothing may have changed in reality, except the identity, because there's a, a holding on to what's assumed to be a fully realized self. And that identity has become so centralized, so focused on, because again, under moral therapeutic deism, the point here is I should be happy. Whatever it is that keeps me from happiness is a danger to my identity and therefore to me. And Mm. when we stop working, when it becomes more about what I have inside my head, what I have inside my head can be translated very easily into who I am. That's the difference between my accountant and, say, the palm reader. My accountant has knowledge in their head about how to work with my money. I'm paying them for that knowledge. But the palm reader has knowledge inside their head that says, I can pretend to read this person's palm and I'll get money for it. There's a very distinct difference in those two values of what's in their head. But that's very distinct, again, from the person who says, hey, I have a hammer and a saw, but that doesn't make me a contractor. What makes me a contractor is the fact that I've built a thousand homes. Or the person Mm -hmm. who says, hey, I'm an artist. Well, what makes you an artist? I have all these great ideas. I also own an easel. Do you own any <laughs> paints or paintbrushes? No, but I'm an artist. In fact, I'm an artiste. See, I was, t- I was having a conversation with my friend about this the other day. I said, it, it's not having the tools that makes you a builder. It's not having the paintbrushes that makes you an artist. It's making the paintings. It's building the homes. The identity doesn't come in other words, from the tools, but from the work. And when we separate the work from the tools, 
of the trade and we identify with the tools and therefore we are, we end up having a label that is really quite vapid, but empty. Does that make sense? It does. It's when we, as you stated, um, are able to divine things unto ourselves, uh, we end up with a lot of problems. Um, a lot of problems. Uh, it's, I, I would say, one of the things that is tough in general is knowing how best to parent in a world that um, promotes things and encourages things that I don't think my child is ready for. Um, right. But yet we have to figure out a way to to lovingly talk about this so that they can engage with the world around them. Um, had a friend call me last night, asked me about um, if I'd seen the new Disney plus um, one with the uh, Baymax, who I love. And mm-hmm. I haven't seen a new season. Um, but he was telling me he watched a couple episodes and every there was a lot of things going on that he didn't find to be appropriate for his child, who is six. And we talked about words, defining them clearly and defining them outside of your son. Right. Um, you know, making sure he understands he's part of a community, making sure that he knows mom and dad are the filters as he learns and grows. But encourage your six-year-old to know that uh, that he can begin looking and understanding that someone's trying to promote something at all times. Um, and so we talked about that just in general. What is 101 Dalmatians promoting? Mm-hmm. What is whatever, and and helping his son understand just as commercials are advertising now shows are promoting. Everyone has something they're trying to to get you to do or to engage. We are trying to get you to get closer to God, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and to know that should help make things clearer. Um, not fuzzier because i think most people don't understand the pressure that's being placed the pressure that is being placed upon them and how they're being made into um, things that they were never meant to fit into or molded in ways that um, are not healthy it's if i take love as an example and simply say i'm going to define it by myself however i want then I can end up with a whole bunch of stuff. Sure. Um, and that that's only acceptable if um, I'm fragile. Um, right? Like, love is a concrete thing. I love you as my brother in Christ. I love you as my best friend. And, you know, if you need stuff, we'll try and figure it out. I don't have a ton of money, but I do have arms and legs and a car and you know, a son who's seven and can eat just about anything. So if you need to get rid of something, um, (laughs) (laughs) but it, but it is, um, it is, it's clear to me that there are certain things like love that have varied 
as people engage with it and is defined as people engage with it and not being able to say, no, let me help you. Your definition's not correct because culture has encouraged us that truth is relative. Mm -hmm. Then that gets to the fragility. Because if your definition was true, then we could bounce against one another and it wouldn't be a problem to have this conversation. But often it's, it's not that way. It's, the subtitle of this book is how good intentions and bad ideas are ruining a generation. It's not a direct quote, but that's the rough mm-hmm. idea. And that's, that's the tension here is that the, the impulse and the desire to keep someone safe, to recognize that a person has value, that there are harmful things that will, mm-hmm. that can and will do damage. And we do want to care for the people who have the potential of being broken. That's a really good impulse. Yeah. The problem but, is when we apply it in such a way that the primary goal is never get hurt, never get mm-hmm. hurt, never get hurt. That in fact weakens the person and causing someone to become weaker out of love is not love. It's something else. It is, it is something totally different than love. We see this, you know, if you're, if you're trying to recover, <clears throat> anyone who's gone through physical therapy knows this. Your PT person does not hate you, even though they act like it every time you see them. They know what you know, and that's why they keep on telling you this. In order for you to recover from whatever this injury is, you have to work hard mm-hmm. pushing into the pain, pushing through the pain. And as, as a result, it's not even necessarily the physical strengthening that has the biggest impact, but it's actually the internal and the mental strengthening that has the longest impact. Because someone who's mentally strong can go through all kinds of physical suffering and not be weak. Because the fragility is not in the body, although that's where we see it and that's where we're trying to protect you. The fragility is in the mind. Am I safe? Can I take this? No, I'm scared. Keep it away. Don't let that come near me because it's going to destroy who I am. And that's, that's not the way that we're made. We're not fragile. We are breakable. And we are very, very resilient. Well, that gets to the second point about, or the second untruth of emotional reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, always trust your feeling. How do you, you know, in a world that is swamped in emotion, how do you, how do you wrestle with this one? And my kids are such a good example because my kids have all kinds of feelings and mm-hmm. they make determinations out of the feelings. There's a couple things that I, that I walk through with them. Number one, I help them to identify better words, more specific words mm-hmm. for what they're feeling as they get older. So my six-year-old, as I was saying goodbye to her this morning, she was all in her emotions about something. Wasn't sure what exactly it was, but I knew there was something. And I'm just waiting for and inviting her gently to to open up. And she finally starts crying and just says, I'm stressed. Because this is language that we've handed to her, which at this point is no longer helping her. It's, (laughs) 
it's actually going to hold her back. And so the question for her now is, okay, you're feeling stressed. Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling sad? Do you think maybe you're hungry? Are you stressed about going back home? Are you scared about me going to work? Do you feel like I'm angry at you? I want you to have words to be able to understand the emotional instability inside you and to be able to communicate it because it's only upon doing that that you can actually then go and evaluate it. And I tell my 11-year-old son this all the time. He's got fantastic gut instincts, which is to say, on the one hand, he has gut instincts all the time. And a lot of time they're accurate, but, I, but a lot of time they're wrong. The, the, the problem is he doesn't know that they're wrong. He believes that they're always correct. And so I've told him, I said, trust your instincts, but question your certainty. What do you think's about to happen? Why do you think that's about to happen? Well, because every time I've asked this, this is the answer I've gotten. Okay, now question that. Is that answer that you just gave, is that accurate? Is it every time? No, it's not every time, but it's most of the time. Like one out of five times you're told something different, two out of five times, five out of five times. What, what is it in fact? Well, it's like at least half the time. Okay. Are there reasons? And just going through the thought process of being able to evaluate what am I afraid of? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? And are my, are the beliefs that I hold in this issue, are they accurate to the world that exists? Or are they being shaped by what I'm feeling? Disney has done a great disservice to kids all over the place in presenting this heroic and romantic picture of if you just follow your feelings, things will turn out great. People who don't understand you, they'll come around and they'll understand that you really had a really good beat on it way back there from the beginning. And now you're going to be the king or you're going to be the emperor or you're going to be the princess or the queen or whatever it is. And if you just continue following whatever it is in your heart, trust your instincts, trust your feelings, you're going to prove them all wrong. And everyone's going to look up to you and admire you. And that's just a crock. I mean, it's just, it's patently bad reasoning. It's patently bad advice. If we were to give this to someone, if I, you're in the military. If we go to a uh, an E1 in any of the branches, say, you know what? Here are the orders. But you just figure out what you feel like you want to do. And you follow that. You pursue that. And in the end, the generals will all say, oh, my gosh, what a smart person this 18-year-old kid was. They really understand warfare. They really understand how the battlefield works. They really understood diplomacy. And man, did they really show us. They should be king. Where, where is that ever? The fact that we put that out there as this ideal is fun as fantasy. It's ludicrous as a template for life. But we have been so steeped in it that to say, trust your feelings, follow your heart, is not to say anything but really good wisdom at this point. Hmm. We've swallowed that pill 
And it's turned around and bitten us really hard. Mm. I'm not sure why I ranted on that one so much, but. It's okay. I had the first one. When so, to me. <laughs> the third one is the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Only um, stupid people think that, and they're all Nazis anyway. Well, <laughs> it's, it's easy to look at um, uh, the Old Testament and have a model. Um, at least this is me thinking uh, that fits this um, um, mindset. I think it's easy to also say that in the Old Testament, um, Israel didn't love properly both God and its neighbors. Um, it often fell into a cycle of sin in which it became like its neighbor. Right. Um, I think good versus evil um, is one of those things where we know it is true when it comes to angels and demons, right? Sure. We know it's true when we look at God that there are um, wicked people that exist. And yet, we, as God would have it, do not have the ability to see that um, clearly. And I think that's on purpose. Um, I can't look at a person and see their horns. Um, right. Right? I, I just can't. I can't look at a kid and say, oh, look, they're evil. <laughs> um, wow. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> don't be mad at your your your, your pta association uh, <laughs> um it's, have you ever watched kids play soccer <laughs> it's it's and see this is where we're what you're hitting at the behavior helps me see some stuff mm-hmm. but it doesn't tell me that if they're evil um correct correct that, you know that that is that is something that and i I don't believe God made a mistake. I do believe he didn't give us eyes to see fully um, because he wants us to to live um, in a unique style of relationship that requires us to love first, then know, and then engage. Um, When I say love, my definition isn't the comfy, cozy, feely. This is the Good Samaritan definition of love. This is the one where I'm willing to engage sacrificially. And out of that, know a person um, so that I can understand where they are in relationship to God. Right. Um, and they are letting me know whether they are family or foe. Right. Um, but no, even as foe, they could be future family. Um, the... The inability to recognize that we have a lot more in common um, than what separates us is, um, I think, a huge miss when it comes to how churches engage with one another, Um, let alone how churches engage with non-believing organizations and non-believers. For sure. I agree with you. This is the the thinking of 
I need to focus on good versus evil is not what we're called to. We're called to focus on um, obedience, which is if you love me, as Jesus stated, then you'll obey me. And when it comes to the church, caring for one another, feeding one another, making disciples. Um, and that isn't a, an us versus them mindset. Because um, when we look at the original church, we see there was a whole bunch of everything there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't by race or age or economic class. It was simply identity in Christ. Right. Um, right. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my rant. What do you think? I think that this goes back to what we were already talking about with identity and the rise mm-hmm. of the therapeutic mindset in, in conjunction with um, the decline of religion and therefore the decline of a corporate understanding and acceptance that morality is something that is outside of me, something that I measured against, not something that I define and become the measure of for others. What I mean by that is um, when, when psychology as a discipline began, what it was looking to do was to identify and to label distortions or abnormalities and then find ways to correct them. Somewhere in the past 25 years or so, 30 years or so, Mm -hmm. that has changed from looking to correct to teaching people how to manage to then accepting and helping other people outside of the client to actually become an advocate for helping the people in their circles to embrace them where they are. And if that means that you want to change, then we can help you do that. But really, therapy at this point is about helping you to create the world around you that's good for you, not create within you a better version of yourself that can live within the world that you exist in. That then isolates. But what it does fundamentally is it says whatever the, uh, the label is that you have as your primary identity, that becomes the measure by which you should look at everyone else. Now, I'm going to agree with that insofar as I'm going to say, if your label is I'm a Christian, then you recognize that morality, that goodness factor, is in fact outside of you, not inside of you. Right. You don't get to design it. You don't get to decide it. Decide it. You don't get to design it or designate that what you said is good is good because you said so. You measure yourself against what God has already said. You either live up to it or you don't. And living that way ceases to allow you to have this always present idea that you live in a world of good people against bad people. Because when you're honest with yourself, what you recognize is life is a struggle because growth is struggle. And life is a struggle 
of bad people with bad people. And sometimes bad people against bad people, but the fact is we're all bad people. Mm. I, I don't get to saint myself. I don't get to put a halo on myself because I feel good about myself or because I like the way I think. That assumes a couple things. It assumes, A, like I said, I've been fully realized in who I am. B, I am the judge by which everything else should be judged. C, you need to recognize and embrace my lifestyle, which is to say, I believe I'm God. The change that's happened in the therapeutic environment here is that rather than having patients come to be changed, we've elevated the patient in a, in a desire to advocate for the patient, to enable them and empower them. We have said to them, you know what? You're not the patient. You're the client. And you know what? You're not the client. You're the standard. Let me, let me validate you. And what that does is that's like putting a cast on a perfectly good arm to protect that arm from ever potentially running into anything that might damage it. The result is it becomes weaker and weaker and weaker, and then starts to stink. That's also not getting the air it needs. And it becomes not just a weakness, but it becomes a detriment to the whole body. The only way that we can view life as a battle between good and evil is to accept that there is a God. Otherwise, all we have is people spouting their own opinions. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you think my opinion is a bad opinion and you think your opinion is a good opinion, so what? Apply your own logic to it. I mean, it, it's a, it's a self-defeating philosophy. It will root itself out it's a snake eating its own tail. But it feels good for a moment. And this is one of the things that the authors talked about. In fact, this is one of the things that, that led the author of this book to write on this topic. The story he describes is he was very much fighting within the ACLU for free speech in New York City on campuses. And what he found was that a lot of people left him and vilified him for protecting free speech of people that they disagreed with. And he said, well, you know, free speech really is a bedrock here. And so, yes, I will defend free speech even for Republicans. And he was told by someone very close to him, well, I think Republicans are at least as bad as Nazis, if not worse. Now, maybe that was a joke. But the reality was, he was so isolated in his stance here because it cut against the grain of this. It's good people against bad people. And the bad people need to be put down. And whatever we need to do to put them down is what we should do because that's what they deserve. That left him in a place where he was suicidal. And in his recovery from suicide was when he actually started working through and challenging his own belief system going through the steps of CBT that he talks about later in the book, realizing this whole idea 
while it is based on a good impulse, goes way too far and is choking us to death. From a Christian point of view, you got to understand, Satan doesn't have to defeat God. All he has to do is put something in front of us that looks good so that rather than pursuing God, we go after this thing that looks good. And it doesn't have to be very far from God. A desire to keep people safe, a desire to root out evil are good things. But unless they're being led by God, they can only lead away from him. And from, from my perspective, that's what's really fundamental here as we talk about this in A&D, as we talk about this with a young Christian. It's not that coddling someone is a bad thing because it leaves them weak. Anything that distracts us from God, everything that points not to God, but to something else that says this is the ideal, know that Satan is the master deceiver and his work for thousands of years, as long as he's been doing this, has been to put things up in front of people to make it look like the good thing so that they will pursue it and leave God behind. And that's what we've got to be watching out for. Well, there you go. How do we want to land this plane? Bumpily. Bumpily. <laughs> Bring your tray tables and seat backs up to their upright and locked position because we will talk to you next time. There you go. <laughs> Have a blessed day. <laughs>